You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friends. Zach Twomley here with the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary project episode 67 in fact we've here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com been at this a long time and you know by now that the best way to get in contact with inquire support this podcast etc etc is to plug into all those different social media mediums for lack of a better term twitter and facebook being the obvious two but maybe you've held off all this time because to be quite honest with yourself you're just sick to death of facebook and twitter and not being able to get away from these things Maybe you'd like to go to a place where you can have a filter and essentially just look at what you want to look at and talk to people who are like-minded and interested in the same things as you. If that sounds like you, or maybe if you like Twitter and Facebook but you want another way to join in the discussion with this podcast as well, then I would recommend the app Flick. Flick is a great app because it helps us to talk to one another about different topics that I can suggest, that you can suggest, that anyone can take part in. The app itself is free to download, of course, 
And once you download it, and once you click on the link in the description of this podcast, you'll be taken to essentially the group of this podcast where you can start taking part in all the relevant discussions. Every time I release an episode, I'll also release a discussion talking about what was actually talked about by me in that episode, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm not selling it that well, but maybe you are interested. If you are, do click on the link in the description below. Or search for the app Flick. That's F-L-I-C-K. And don't put in Flickr by mistake because we're not on that platform and I don't plan on being on that platform. Or Instagram for that matter. Trying to keep myself as grounded as possible. I am, of course, very active on all these social media platforms. And you may well be wondering what the heck is the point in joining yet another one. But Flick is great because it helps you drown out the noise of all those people that you may not really be all that interested in. If Facebook is getting you down... If the only reason you're on Facebook is because of when diplomacy fails, who am I kidding? Anyway, if the only reason you are on Facebook is because of your history friends, then you should know that history friends will have a great time on Flick. And not only that, but all of your favorite history podcasts that are also on the Agora Podcast Network have joined Flick as well. So you can join their Flick groups and Flick at all the other different people. I'm not sure if Flick or Flicking is a term, maybe it should be, but All you have to do is go and get that app for completely no cost at all and start talking to your history friends. Flick is an experiment, of course. I'm trying it out to see how it goes. And you should know that it is a paid promotion, just to be upfront and honest with you guys. But when I heard what Flick actually does and what you can get out of it, I didn't feel particularly guilty telling you guys about it. Because as far as I'm concerned, it helps us talk to one another on a deeper level than ever before. And if you, like me, are very much sick of Facebook and want to get the heck off that platform ASAP, but can't really justify abandoning all the people that you'd leave behind, then maybe Flick appeals to you. Even if not, do check it out. And while you're checking it out, check out the latest question we release after this episode where I'm going to be asking you, do you think Woodrow Wilson ever stood a chance in passing the Treaty of Versailles? Do you think maybe a different president could have passed the Treaty of Versailles in Congress? Or do you think Wilson was just doomed from the beginning? that sounds good to you, check that out. But until then, listen and enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 68. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 68 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. The VAP, as I've taken to calling it, at least in my notes, because writing Versailles Anniversary Project a million times a day can make one go insane. Anyway, last time we delved into the question of Greece and its premier, Venizelos, whose campaign for gaining approval from the Allies for initiative in Smyrna had, as we learned, terrible consequences for the people of that corner of Anatolia, but also for Greek and Turkish people generally. It could not be known that when the soldiers were landed on the 15th of May 1919, that three and a half years later, an apocalypse would be hosted in that same city. 
But something which was undeniable was the central role which the Big Three played in approving and then arranging this landing. The Big Three made the Greek occupation of Smyrna actually possible, and it must be said that they made what followed possible as well. Greece and Turkey are shaped still to this day by their actions, even though these actions are not very well understood or even known to this day. Of those that vouched for Venizelos, Woodrow Wilson was perhaps the least invested of the big three. He had never approved of concepts which would deliver large tracts of land, and on the surface at least, he cleaved to the principles of self-determination, enshrined in the League of Nations Covenant and his 14 points. By the middle of May, though, it would have been fair to ask where Wilson stood in regard to these principles. He had, after all, compromised on them before, and he'd do so again. The peace treaty which he approved of had utterly shocked the Germans, because they had imagined until the end that Wilson, the liberal, was on their side. The Italians had been dissatisfied to discover that the principle of self-determination only applied when the United States president wanted to apply it. Rome could have the multi-ethnic Tyrol, but not Fiume, it seemed. Where once only the 14 points would do as the basis for peace, by this point in the negotiations, Wilson was just as willing as his peers to approve of the reparations policy, which he had originally spurned. It was quite a change in character, and even if he had become more accommodating of the Allied positions, This did not please his critics, who would later claim that he only modified his method of thinking in order to snag the British and French for the League of Nations project. As we have seen, this attitude also motivated opposition to Wilson's plans back in the United States, where he faced a formidable block of critics, sceptics and opposition politicians. This block had not sat still since Wilson had last visited in late February, early March. If anything, as a group opposed to Wilson's League of Nations covenant without significant adjustments, it became much more united and gathered more momentum. Wilson would have to bear this in mind as he worked tirelessly in Paris to finalise the peace, that back home, the walls erected against whatever agreement he brought back were growing in size and strength. In this episode, we're going to investigate some of these walls, so to speak, and assess Wilson's position by mid-May 1919, to bring you a fuller picture of what Congress was doing at this point and how it affected the President. Just how wary was Wilson of the second campaign he would have to wage once the Big Three had reached an agreement and he could return home? How effective was the opposition mounted by Republicans and some elements of Wilson's own party against his ideals? Did he ever have a chance in his quest to reimagine the world and America's role within it? We've addressed some of these questions already, and introduced you to some of the more prominent figures, such as Henry Cabot Lodge. But in this episode, we double down on them, and build as complete a picture as we can of the overall challenge which the President faced by the middle of May, as the peace conference entered its final phase. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the centre of the debate. Even before he had left for Europe in early December 1918, Wilson would have been made aware of the opposition to the very notion of his journey. Some of his opponents believed that the Constitution implicitly forbade such adventures, and that the unprecedented period of seven months which he was away for was the last thing a transitional United States needed. What the United States needed was a firm leader and a president focused on American matters, but what it got instead was an absentee president 
who had little time for anything other than the Paris Peace Conference, even when he eventually returned home. By his own admission, Wilson had a one-track mind, which meant that he was consumed by the prospect of forging a peace which would last, and that he was obsessed with the vision of peace with the League of Nations at its core. The eight days when he returned to the United States to campaign for this plan, from the 24th of February to the 5th of March, were taken up by meetings and dinners, which were themselves geared towards the fulfilment of his vision. There was no day off when Wilson focused on the innumerable issues unrelated to his peace conference adventures, which the war had caused for America, including, but not limited to, surging inflation, high unemployment, widespread race riots, and a rash of labour strikes across the United States. A solution to these problems required the executive's full participation, which Wilson was, of course, unable to give. As the historian William G. Ross wrote, While Wilson may have been correct in believing that his efforts to ensure a lasting peace would do more to promote the long-term interests of the United States than would his attention to the tedious details of domestic politics, the voters had elected him to discharge a constitutional duty as the nation's chief executive rather than to become the world's messiah. Thus, Wilson's difficulties with his opponents began not when he returned with the outline of a treaty in late February 1919, nor when he returned with the supposedly final treaty in July that same year, but when he announced in November 1918 that he intended to negotiate this treaty personally. Before he had brought any semblance of a treaty back with him to Congress to review, Wilson had already met the determined opposition of his peers to his policy. But what about when he did return with the outline of a policy and the draft covenant of the League which had been agreed to on the 14th of February? What, in the case of the covenant of the League of Nations, did senators and statesmen opposing Wilson's vision find so repugnant about it? The problems which the likes of Henry Cavill Lodge had with the League were legion, as was underlined by that Massachusetts senator's ability to draw 14 reservations together in early March. At the centre of the controversy was the sovereignty issue, or in other words, the concern among some US statesmen that the League would override the instruction of the Constitution, and in the most extreme versions of this fear, that the League would effectively tell America what to do. This was despite the fact that it was known by mid-February the League would have no method for collecting members' taxes or deploying any joint army. These shortcomings did not reduce the fears which some individuals had. In fact, it seemed to exacerbate them. As William Phillips Stafford, a Justice of the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia, noted in July 1919, For all practical purposes, it may thus have far greater power than any existing nation, the League is, for many and important purposes, a legal and political entity. It has the quality of perpetuity. It does not perish when its members change. It is not dissolved by the addition or retirement of members. It acts through officials and organs of its own, and it undertakes to confer on its agenda the power to govern lands and peoples. But even before Wilson unveiled the Covenant in mid-February, many Americans espoused the view that membership in any international organisation that exercised any kind of independent authority, could create a conflict with the Constitution. When Wilson unveiled the terms of the Covenant, this tended to confirm their fears and reservations, and to stiffen their opposition. 
At the core of their opposition was the essential objection to the League, because it constituted a new and independent political entity that had at least some of the qualities of an independent nation. Sovereignty, they argued, is indivisible, so the United States could not legally become part of another sovereign state without divesting itself of all of its sovereignty. As an Indiana lawyer exclaimed, no nation could be sovereign and subject at the same time. What a paradox. When the League was granted territories to administer, such as Danzig, a free city, and the Tsar, a free administrative area, and the German colonies under League stewardship, it seemed that not only was the League becoming a rival party to the Constitution, it was also gathering together characteristics which made it increasingly appear like a state. Yet, Wilson did not have to fight the fight alone, insofar as he did have genuine supporters in Congress, and American society for that matter, who advocated for the League, as one federal judge explained regarding the League at the time. The League will not be a superstate in any sense. The function of the administrative, executive, and judicial authority of the League is, perforce, merely contemplative, critical and advisory. It sees, it hears, it determines, it counsels, it requests. It possesses no intrinsic or granted power anywhere to do anything save to show the nations of the earth how and best the peace of the world may be maintained. Even the immensely popular author H.G. Wells weighed in on the debate in favour of Wilson, observing that while the League of Nations is up against national feeling, Wells insisted that So far from nationality being antagonistic to the League of Nations, honest national feeling is bound to welcome the League as a security for its own life. But therein lied the problem, the inconsistency of Wilson's message. It was far easier for an alarmist message to be broadcast throughout the American nation and for cautionary tales of what could happen to American sovereignty to be believed, rather than for pro-League senators to state unequivocally that there would be absolutely no reduction in American sovereignty. So in addition to downplaying the idea that the League would reduce American sovereignty, supporters of the League also hit back with the idea that all treaties to some extent reduced sovereignty, and that this was a natural part of international relations, which was not to be feared. In addition, the point was made that giving up a smidgen of sovereignty would be worth it in the long run if this would prevent war. As one Chicago lawyer noted, A moderate surrender of sovereignty or of national power, if conditioned upon the utter elimination of war, would receive massive popular support despite the Constitution shouting orators. And the legal profession continued to weigh in, with a California attorney proclaiming in March 1919 that something of the political sovereignty must necessarily be surrendered in making treaties with other nations. Absolutism has no place in the society of nations. Yet, it was insisted, there was no need to fear whatever concessions were made, for the federal courts would retain the power to interpret whatever obligations may exist in the final version of the League Covenant. And then there were those that compared the complementary sovereignty of the United States and the League with the pre-existing situation that governed America, where states and the federal government both shared sovereignty. The debate was therefore multi-layered when it came to sovereignty, and it was hard to deny that both sides of this debate had some merit. 
Perhaps the most important proponent of the league, other than Wilson himself, was William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States and predecessor to Wilson in the White House. In a major speech in New York on the 4th of March 1919, at which he shared the platform with Wilson, by the way, Taft declared that No function or discretion is taken from any branch of government which it now performs or exercises. Taft explained that the essence of sovereign power is that, while a sovereign may make a contract, it retains the power to repudiate it, if it so chooses to dishonour its promises. That does not render null the original obligation, or discredit its binding moral force. Denying that the League created any super-sovereignty, Taft explained that it merely creates contract obligations. Taft also alleged that opponents of the treaty were using the sovereignty idea as an excuse to assert their own unregulated desires that is not in accord with American principles nor with the Constitution of the United States. Similarly, in another example, Taft insisted in a St. Louis speech later in the year that the League does not impair our just sovereignty in the slightest. It is only an arrangement for maintenance of our sovereignty within its proper limits, which he described as a sovereignty regulated by international law and international morality and international justice with a somewhat rude machinery created by the agreement of nations to prevent one sovereignty from being used to impose its unjust will on other sovereignties. But because, perhaps, of the inherent vagueness of what sovereignty meant, and the fact that everyone kept on talking about it and confusing everyone else, and where it could be applied as an idea, Wilson and his opponents focused on the actual articles of the Covenant of the League of Nations as well, in particular Articles 10 and 11, which we've talked about in the past, because they were the most controversial, since they dealt with questions of war, peace, and collective responsibility. Article 10 read as follows. The members of the League undertake to respect and preserve, as against external aggression, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. In case of any such aggression, or in case of any threat or danger of such aggression, the Council shall advise upon the means by which this obligation shall be fulfilled. Advocates of the League of Nations, including Woodrow Wilson, regarded this collective security clause to be the heart of the covenant. When you came to Article 11, though, well, Article 11 was longer, but its opening sentence placed the controversy front and centre, because it stated, Any war or threat of war, whether immediately affecting any members of the League or not, is hereby declared a matter of concern to the whole League, and the League shall take any action that may be deemed wise and effectual to safeguard the peace. These two articles, while apparently so stark and revolutionary in their presentation, were problematic because, much like the notion of sovereignty, they were open to interpretation by proponents and opponents of the League alike. This was the result of the efforts by those crafting the League to appeal to the different states who were expected to ratify it. By inserting the deliberately vague paragraphs, where unambiguous terms like obligation were interspersed with very broad words like advise and undertake, there was bound to be disagreement about exactly how compelled to act the United States was. 
Scaremongers would present the most frightful interpretations, and proponents of the League would argue that America could fit in where she liked. Just as before, vagueness managed to permeate the debate, and just as before, where no hard answers could be found, negative connotations and rumours were easier to spin. It also didn't help that Wilson was himself vague and inconsistent, not just in terms of America's sovereignty or regarding the extent to which she would be obliged to act, but also when discussing other principles which he supposedly held dear, such as self-determination. President Wilson is likely to be classed among the few leading men of his time who seem to have a sound conception of the terms which would make for an enduring peace. That which he, in common with nearly all other Americans, failed to realise was the passion and greed engendered in Central and Western Europe by four years of struggle, following fifty years of dread and apprehension. This was a judgment made by Robert Edwards Annan, a historian writing in 1924, who, as you may have guessed, was quite a fan of Wilson. As we've seen, though, while he may have had a vision for the peace and the New World Order which would follow it, the terms underpinning that order and the conditions of the League of Nations which would defend that order were vague and open to interpretation so long as Wilson was around. Sovereignty and articles addressing collective security and war These were controversial matters for American statesmen to say the least, and it was far easier for Wilson to remain vague than to actually define his stance. In Wilson's mind, this vagueness granted opportunities to appease both the isolationists and the interventionists, but in reality, it made him appear weak, non-committal and inconsistent. In the case of a less important matter for American audiences, that of self-determination, Wilson's flip-flopping was never more completely on display. Wilson's determination to cling to the self-determination principle is interesting precisely because it never actually appeared in his 14 points, nor was it actually espoused by him until February 1918, though before that time, in a handful of speeches, Wilson did express views which would later fall under the very wide umbrella of self-determination. Every people said Wilson in one such speech in spring 1917, has a right to choose the sovereignty under which they shall live. Furthermore, said the President, no peace can last, or ought to last, which does not recognise and accept the principle that governments derive all their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that no right anywhere exists to hand peoples about from one sovereignty to another sovereignty, as if they were property. Wilson's reputation as the major proponent of self-determination was aided by the fact that he alone insisted upon it underpinning the final peace treaty, and at least in the early phase of the treaty negotiations, this stance was widely admired. One of the few to go from enthusiastic to disenchanted when it came to Wilson's stance on self-determination was our man in the Foreign Office, Harold Nicholson. Nicholson believed that self-determination as a concept was not a problem. The real problem was that, as he put it in his memoirs, the idol of self-determination had clay feet. In other words, the towering concept as Wilson represented it was not based on solid ideas or definitions, and it was therefore vulnerable to manipulation. For a concept like self-determination to work and be respected, it would have to be applied universally, integrally, forcefully and scientifically from the beginning. Instead of that, what the peacemakers got in the end was, according to Nicholson, patchwork Wilsonianism. 
It was a vision that was applied strictly and uncompromisingly to some theatres, but utterly ignored in others, and this inconsistency left a bitter taste in nations as varied as Italy, Ireland, China, Hungary and Germany. There's no need to examine all the examples where Wilson contradicted his own self-determination principle, but a short list of the most egregious examples will suffice. There was the abandonment of the 150,000 Germans in the Tyrol to Italy, contradicted by the refusal to grant that same Italy the much smaller and more Italian port of Fiume. There was the insistence on carefully parceling up land between Poland and Germany to avoid a rupture, contradicted by the blithe surrender of 3 million Germans to the Czechs. There was the demand that France could not get unlimited control over the Rhineland Germans, contradicted by the failure to actually consider whether Austrian Germans wished to be independent or joined to Berlin. The list went on, but it was at its most glaring when it was completely ignored. Why did peoples like the Irish, Koreans or Baltics fail to qualify for self-determination? This was picked up by the Italians, especially Italian Foreign Minister Sidney Sanino, who complained loudly and regularly that it seemed like one rule for the Italians and one rule for everyone else when it came to self-determination. It would be more accurate, but much less sensitive, to state that it was one rule for those with the power and ability to enforce or ignore self-determination, and one rule for everyone else. What we should also remember is that Wilson believed in the power of the League to solve these self-determination disputes. The great problem, Wilson noted, is the problem of agreement, because the most fatal thing that could happen, I should say, in the world, would be that sharp lines of division should be drawn between the Allied and Associated Powers. Personally, I think, the thing will solve itself upon the admission of Germany to the League of Nations. Little wonder that Nicholson remarked acidly how The Covenant, in fact, became, for him, Wilson, the box room in which he stored all inconvenient articles of furniture. The peace negotiations had underlined, to Wilson's surprise, just how many pieces of furniture potentially blocked the successful resolution of the peace treaty. Paradoxically, then, in the name of reaching agreement on this treaty, Wilson kicked several cans down the road, a familiar scene for us by now, but he claimed that these would be attended later on, since this treaty was, after all, only temporary. If it was so temporary and flexible, why not delay its conclusion, or why not replace it with something that was both concrete and actually meaningful? That Wilson did not do this was not a result of his inherent dishonesty or naivety, but due to the unavoidable fact that a resolution which pleased everyone from Arden to China to those that ruled over those powers was impossible. Certainly this was the view of the historian William Allen White, who, writing in 1924, expressed the view that Woodrow Wilson lost the peace because it could not have been won, not the peace he envisioned. Humanity was not ready for it. We Americans like to think that we were ready for it, in the sense that we were not bitten by the dogs of old nationalist enmities and suspicions, this is true. But we had our jingoes as well as did Europe, and our jingoes preferred the peace of the militarist to the peace of the conference table. So we joined the jingoes of Europe. The common people of the world were ready highly to aspire with Wilson, but they were not wise enough to choose leaders of his kind. Europe had scores of leaders, but Europe listened less patiently to these gentle leaders than they gave ear to Wilson. When it came to the surrender of their ancient prejudices, the peoples of Europe responded to their intriguing leaders 
even as Americans responded to their irreconcilables. This must be said always in the defence of President Wilson's apparent failure in the struggle for a peace based upon reason rather than upon force. Where the vision was impossible to fulfil, Wilson relied upon compromises which were equally likely to cause trouble in the future. While we may dispute the idea put forward here by William Allen White that the world wasn't ready for Wilson the visionary, it is difficult to deny that Wilson, the Presbyterian preacher-president, made several deals with the devil to get his treaty and the league within that treaty over the line. In Wilson's mind, of course, it was better to irritate China and Ireland in the hope that they would be accommodated by the League in the future, but that, in the meantime, those powers that watched over China and Ireland, i.e. Japan and Britain respectively, that those powers would sign the treaty rather than fall out with his immediate allies over such questions. By making a peace which the world could prosper from, which held the League as a core point, Wilson imagined that any errors or inconsistencies could just be smoothed over. Yet he underestimated the scale of the resentment he engendered by following this policy, especially from at home. Wilson also failed to appreciate, even when he was ultimately defeated in spring 1920, that American partisanship was partially, or largely, depending on whom you ask, responsible for the defeat. This partisanship, furthermore, was inflamed and exacerbated by Wilson's actions, starting with the uninspiring appointments he made to the five-man American delegation. In choosing as his delegation, Edward House, Secretary of State Robert Lansing, Henry White and General Tasker Howard Bliss, Wilson intended to have the run of the conference without large egos or personalities getting in his way. The irony was, though, that as the conference wore on, it became increasingly clear that, first, Wilson really could have done with another experienced American statesman, such as William Howard Taft, or even, if he was feeling especially generous, Henry Cabot Lodge, to help share the load. And, second, that by making no effort to appease the partisan sides of the American political divide, Wilson effectively turned the Treaty of Versailles and League of Nations into a partisan issue. This was the view expressed by Thomas A. Bailey in 1947, when he wrote, Blind partisanship, as much as any other single factor, ruined the League of Nations in the United States. This is not to condemn any one individual or group of individuals. It is merely to state a fact which, in the circumstances, was as inescapable as the law of gravitation. The treaty was too much bound up with Wilson, and especially with Wilson's League of Nations, to leave any room for hope that the issue could escape the reefs of partisanship. One competent writer has estimated that four-fifths of the opposition to the League was nothing more than unreasoning hatred of Wilson. This is probably an exaggeration, but there can be no doubt that the Republican leaders, and many of the Republican rank and file, hated the President with a consuming bitterness, and were prepared to stop at nothing to bring about his downfall, and at the same time, so they claimed, save the Republic. Even worse than the consequences of these actions, though, an additional consequence which is often forgotten is that these four men he did choose eventually turned against him, with House taking the longest to do so. Even before they returned to the United States with solidly anti-Wilsonian opinions, Lansing, Bliss and White had met regularly and made plain their opposition to the President's approach. Above all, this opposition was set against Wilson's strategy to give in to, or ignore, contradictions in his vision now, in the hope that the League would solve these problems later. 
This was done regularly, but it was most explicit in his treatment of the Sino-Japanese question in late April. It was then that, under the threat of the Japanese walking out if they didn't get their way, the three Americans met together to consider what to do about the situation. Bliss, Lansing and White agreed, for Bliss, to pen a letter to Wilson, expressing their strong views, to the effect that Wilson must not give in to the Japanese demands to hold on to portions of China, specifically the Shantung Peninsula. The very bluntness of this letter recommends it to us. It read, If it be right for a policeman who recovers your purse to keep the contents and claim that he has fulfilled his duty on returning the empty purse, then Japan's conduct may be tolerated. If it be right for Japan to annex the territory of an ally, then it cannot be wrong for Italy to retain Fiume taken from the enemy. If we support Japan's claims, we abandon the democracy of China to the dominion of the Prussianized militarism of Japan. We shall be sowing dragon's teeth. It can't be right to do wrong, even to make peace. Peace is desirable, but there are things dearer than peace, such as justice and freedom. The note must have stung Wilson. His inconsistency when dealing with the Japanese and the Italians, appeasing the former and frustrating the latter, made no sense in the circumstances. To Tasker Howard Bliss, a person we haven't really talked all that much about, but who becomes very important and vocal later on in negotiations, he was a 65-year-old military diplomat of the war, and he'd spent his months fluttering in between the different Allied capitals and offering military advice where necessary, and this whole situation, with the Sino-Japanese question above all, to him, it was a question of straightforward morality. Because if Wilson compromised with Japan and surrendered China, the president would be on very thin ice indeed when he argued that the same was impossible for Italy. The simple fact of the matter was that, as the three Americans realised, Wilson had booked himself into a corner. Wilson felt that it was essential to appease the Japanese after the racial equality proposal had failed, and he also felt that the exit of yet another Allied power after Italy's dramatic exit would have torpedoed the conference altogether. We haven't spent much time looking at this Japanese question, largely because late April and early May were so dominated by Italy's ghost, and our European focus necessitated looking at that. But I should emphasise that the last few days of April were also occupied by Japan's reaction to the situation, which to Count Chidna and Baron Makino Nabuaki represented an opportunity. On the 28th of April, Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, had met with the Japanese, and that afternoon he reported back to the Council of Four, saying that, I understand that if the Japanese received what she claimed in regard to Shantung, her representatives at the plenary meeting would content themselves with a survey of the inequality of races and move some abstract resolution which would probably be rejected. Japan would then merely make a protest. If, however, she regarded herself as ill-treated over Shantung, I would be unable to say what line the Japanese might take. This sense of emergency which the Japanese stance created only served to expose how wafer-thin Wilson's principles were. If he was willing to sacrifice someone's imminent danger, surrounded the conference. Not just Wilson, but also House upheld this option of appeasing Japan as the best choice in a hopeless situation. He wrote to the President on the 29th of April saying that My feeling is that while it is all bad, it is no worse than the things we are doing in many of the settlements in which the Western powers are interested. 
I feel too that we had best clean up a lot of old rubbish with the least friction and let the League of Nations and the new era do the rest. England, France and Japan ought to get out of China and perhaps they will later if enough pressure is brought through public opinion as expressed in the League of Nations. If it wasn't obvious yet, guys, the League of Nations was being saddled with an awful lot of Paris Peace Conference baggage before it had even convened, and there was no indication that once it did convene, that new institution would be able to have the desired effect. First and foremost, the fact that it would be run and dominated by the same powers who had handed such raw deals to China, Hungary, Italy, Ireland and the like, hinted that these powers would be hesitant to place much trust in it. In addition, House spoke of his feelings and things that ought to happen without actually explaining how the League would clean up the mess that the peace conference caused. This is because, of course, he did not know if the League could fix these problems. All that he did know was that these problems threatened to end the conference before the final peace had been signed, and that that outcome had to be avoided at all costs. Where the likes of Tasker Bliss disagreed with House was in the moral question of how strong this peace treaty would be and how defensible the President's actions would be if they were based in such reprehensible, cynical compromises. The answer was one which Wilson did not wish to give, but these strikes would be held against him by those peoples disadvantaged by these deals and by those statesmen whom Wilson skirted around when making these decisions. When he learnt of the appeasement to the Japanese and the fact that he could essentially do nothing about it, Tasker Bliss was enraged and on the 1st of May he exploded in a letter to his wife. The morning we are all mortified and angry at learning that the President had yielded the Japanese claims. Last Saturday, April 26th, he talked to us about it, being evidently disposed to yield them. He's influenced solely by Colonel House, who was a trimmer. He said he would ask our advice but didn't, evidently seeing from the attitude of Mr Lansing and Mr White and myself that we were not disposed to yield. On the morning of the 29th I expressed my views quite strongly to my colleagues, Lansing and White, and they fully concurred with me. They asked me to write a letter to the President and convey to him these views. The enclosed letter of the 29th is my copy of it. How he can reconcile his attitude to one he took on the Italian claims on the east coast of the Adriatic, we do not see. Not to be outdone, Secretary of State Lansing also gave a report on the reaction of the commissioners in his peace negotiations. So intense was the bitterness among the American commissioners over the flagrant wrong being perpetrated that some of them considered whether or not they ought to resign or give notice that they would not sign the treaty if the articles concerning Shantung appeared. Ray Stannard Baker Wilson's press secretary and increasingly his confidant, now that House was falling in favour, noted his own experiences with General Bliss, a man he had great admiration for. General Bliss, Baker believed, had the simple, direct, honest, limited view, but could the rights and wrongs be so clearly blocked out? It was a valid question, and President Wilson, Baker, discerned, saw further and deeper that real justice and freedom in the world was dependent not upon trying to right every wrong of every people, but upon securing a new basis of unity in the world, a new instrumentality for obtaining justice and freedom. Baker concluded somewhat apologetically, I gave General Bliss my heart, but I gave the President my head. The trouble was that the President had so little to build on. 
In an ideal world, perhaps, the president would have stood up for his principles, but when given the choice between compromise and risking the collapse of all their hard work so far, the choice wasn't much of a choice at all for the president, who imagined that he was saving the world insofar as he was preparing it for a new order where the woes and bitterness of the past could be fixed. First, though, they would have to make this better world, and you could only do that by gathering all together the necessary parties first, whatever it took. Yet, we would be mistaken to think that Wilson's peers were opposed simply to the compromises he had made. General Bliss and Lansing were also opposed to the entire structure of the conference and were loudly critical of how the treaty had been made. They both made much of the fact that they'd never been given a chance to see the treaty in its entirety before it was presented to the Germans on the 7th of May. And on the 6th of May, when an abstract of the treaty was presented to the powers in a plenary conference, Bliss agreed with House in condemning the whole practice. The general wrote to his wife on the 6th of May, saying, Today we had a secret plenary seance of the Paris Peace Conference to listen to the stupid exposition of the peace terms for the benefit of these smaller powers. None of us had seen the treaty. I've never seen such a glaring piece of secret diplomacy, notwithstanding all our protestations. The outrageous yielding to Japan on the Shantung question would never have happened if it had not been done secretly. The protests of the world would have prevented it. Thank God my skirts are clear, or at least my conscience is, of any of the wrongdoing. Lansing, equally, was unimpressed with the journey which had been taken to get here. How could any peacemakers approve of a treaty which they had not fully read or absorbed? One could have argued that the treaty, at 440 articles and more than 200 pages, was simply too long for one statesman to fully read and absorb. But the fact that neither they nor the minor powers involved in the conference had even been given the chance struck these members of the delegation as fundamentally wrong. Lansing would criticise the cynical materialism of the treaty, and he worried that the League would become a bulwark of the old order. Evidently, Wilson had lost the confidence of his peers, and the peace process was far from finished, even if the treaty itself was technically complete. Or was it? As we have seen, the presentation of the final peace treaty on the 7th of May to the Germans represented a watershed moment in the peace conference's history, but the question then became one of time. How long would it take for the Germans to voice their approval of the treaty? According to its terms, they would have a fortnight. In other words, they'd have to make their decision known by the 22nd of May. But in the meantime, what were the Allies to do? Judging by the minutes, we can discern that Americans like General Bliss set to work on hammering out military terms for other defeated powers like Austria and Hungary. But we also know from previous episodes that the Big Three turned their attention to other projects like propping up the Greeks in Smyrna. His experience in these areas taught General Bliss that these newly emerging nation-states were far more dangerous than many Americans had been led to believe. He wrote to his wife in early June to the effect that it makes me sick to listen to the stories of our investigators coming back from visits to different nations that our ignorant people at home have deceived themselves into believing are noble races long subject to barbarous oppression. I find that our pets, the Armenians, are as bloody murderers as the Turks, or worse, the Greeks are worse than the Bulgarians or Turks, the Poles are a lot of wild maniacs, the child nations that we are creating have fangs and claws in their very cradles, and before they can walk, they're screaming for knives to cut the throats of those in the neighbouring cradle. 
Of course, the problem for Wilson wasn't merely that his vision was compromised, that his allies were moving against him, that the Germans were scheming to undermine the entire treaty with their counter-proposals that they deliver on the 29th of May, or that his peers in the delegation were diametrically opposed to the deals he had made, as if all of that wasn't bad enough. Wilson knew that Congress had also developed a determined anti-league streak. Perhaps this was due to bipartisanship. Perhaps it was due to Wilson's high-handed nature. Perhaps it was due to the isolationist undercurrent in American feeling. Or perhaps it was a mixture of all those things. Either way, Congress continued to express its own strong views on what Wilson had done and what the treaty meant for the United States. Thanks to the majority of Republicans in both houses, their voices were loudly heard. First and foremost, it was felt to have been too harsh as a treaty, and according to an official review of the American press at the time, there was a sense that the 14 points have been torpedoed. A few heroic editors strove with mighty zeal to convince their readers that not a variance from the president's program was to be found in the 80,000 words of the treaty, and the Republican press, instead of reproaching the chief executive for the collapse of his platform, expressed some elation at the victory of practical statesmen over idealists. Furthermore, according to Lansing's secretary back in Washington, who reported on the reaction in official circles, the feeling in the American capital was quite severe. The average man on the street had been led to believe that Germany was being more than fairly treated, but when the treaty came out, there was rather a gasp. It is surprising what a number of people close to the administration have told me, in confidence, that they feel it is too rigid. If this was how the Americans felt, and if Americans on Wilson's own delegation felt similarly uncomfortable with the terms of the treaty that the President had helped to create, one imagines that the Germans were hardly liable to be pleased with the treaty, which was supposedly final. In fact, one thing that the Germans could agree on was that the treaty was unfair, but many also felt that the treaty represented a betrayal of the German people by the American President. Woodrow Wilson, it seemed, had let down yet another party. He had made yet another enemy, and he had invited criticism from yet another quarter. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.